Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Michael R. Underwood. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Giles Hash. And you've tuned into a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us to sit down with some awesome creators and explore their craft in a never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, a never-ending quest, ongoing, with, without end, ever. As, as, as every writer will tell you, as soon as you're done learning, you're done living, people. That's just the way it is. Dear friends, Giles Hash, a, a, a most uh, disreputable literary alchemist, who, along with his co-hosts Emily Singer and Michelle Graham, perpetuate the fabulous Beyond the Trope podcast. Sir, you were a guest writer on this show not too terribly long ago, and look at you now. You're in the co-host chair. Dude, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to doing a show with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for uh, about a year now. <laughs> God, I, I don't think I've ever been on anybody's list for a year, Giles. You just totally made my day, man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Giles, sit back, relax. Uh, uh, this isn't going to take nearly as long as it usually does. Uh, but let me introduce you to our, our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Absolutely. Ah, oh, you're a gentleman, sir. Uh, well, friends, our, our guest host is a repeat offender here at the virtual studios, appearing as a guest host back in March of 2013 and as a co-host in our episode with Janet and Chris Morris back in October of 2014. Uh, you can certainly go and listen to his long stalkerish intro in his first 20 Minutes With episode, which if I do say so myself, was one of my more inspired efforts in the long stalkerish intro arena. Uh, but since he was last on the show, he has released, let's see, uh, Shield and Crocus, an epic fantasy weird superhero mashup, a YA tale called Younger Gods. He has continued the epic saga started in Geekomancy with two more books, Celebromancy and Hexomancy, and a side quest novel titled Attack of the Geek. He weathered the winds of change at Angry Robot Books, continuing to distinguish himself as their North American sales and marketing manager. He has been appearing with some regularity on two of my favorite podcasts, The Skiffy and Fanty Show, and speculate SF. He recently married his soulmate amid much celebration and geekery, and he recently released the first of his genre not series through Tor novella imprints. It's the first episode of a six-installment season of the series, and it's titled The Shootout Solution. Dear friends, please welcome back to the sumptuous, comfy, and big chair here at the Roundtable Virtual Studios, Michael R. Underwood. Uh, Mike, you know, all the fans out there know we tried to do this before, and through just sheer malignancy on the part of the, the, the audio gremlins, the audio was corrupted. Since then, you and I have embraced. We have. We uh, we broke we broke bread and we, yes, uh, and, we, and toast and toasted boozes at uh, Confusion <laughs> in Novi, Michigan. Indeed, and that was a, a genuine delight. That was now. That's not your first Confusion. You shot arrows at Confusion last year, right? 
Yeah, I've done the archery twice, and I think this year was my fourth time attending. It's a really great convention. This year it got kind of substantially bigger all at once, uh, thanks in probably no small part due to Justin Landon, who was the lit track lead. And yes. they're fabulous authors, many friends, new friends, as well as agents and editors. So as other people have said, Confusion is the worst kept secret in genre <laughs> publishing. It is. It is. Literally, you could not swing a dead cat around the the, the bar without hitting uh, a notable, a laudable or, or some literary alchemist of the highest badassery order. Uh, that was my first this year, and it was a blast. Giles, have you ever done? I have not. You must. You must. I know it's a long way from Colorado to Detroit, but uh, uh, but yeah, you got to make that scene. Um, so awesome. Well, look, Mike, let's get into this. Let's let's not bandy words. Let's let's uh, uh, we've got business to do. We got we got uh, brains to crack. We got we got craft to explore. I'm keen to start my next 20 minutes with Michael Underwood. I'm going to go ahead and set the clock right here. And we will, of course, ignore it because, honestly, Michael, you are one of my favorite people to have in the studio. So um, let's dive into this. Uh, Michael, one of the questions that, that often comes up on the roundtable is the comparison between writing novels and writing short stories. And and we've mm-hmm. covered a lot of ground on that and learned some amazing things about uh, writing through that comparison. You actually bring a very unique perspective because uh, uh, your genre not series is a series of novellas. And so you have, you have some keen experience jumping from the novel framework to the novella framework. And with the excitement around novellas, I thought our listeners might be keen to hear uh, what, what, differences did you discover as you went from the novel format, which you were clearly very comfortable with, into this new form of storytelling framework called the novella? Yeah, so I had written one novella before Genre Knots, and oh, that right. was yes. Attack the Geek for the Rerez series. And that was plotted out at 30,000 words initially. And my publisher editor uh, asked me to, to kind of beef it up to 40 to deliver even better value. Okay. So if you look at Attack the Geek, it's really kind of a, it's a novella with a novelette coda. Interesting. And, <laughs> yeah, because there's, there's the main plot and then there's another thing where it's not quite done. Um, and that's kind of structurally because of the way that I wrote it. But really, it's all still, that is all a novella structure. It's just kind of two acts or like 2.5 acts instead of whatever, uh, depending on how you want to slice the bread. But the thing about novellas that I learned with that is that they are deliciously compact and that you can take the different sliders of fiction where, you know, you can have a, a very small number of settings to a lot of settings. You can have a very small number of characters to a lot of characters. You can have kind of a fairly straightforward plot without a lot of subplots all the way into something that's like super Byzantine and interconnected. So those are the sliders in general. With a novella, you can't really have all of those toward the top end of complexity. Right. You probably have to bring at least one of them down toward the most straightforward. And I think this, this, uh, this idea, which is not really mine kind of by origin, that I think can apply between novels and longer novel, longer novels. If you look at, say something in epic fantasy, a lot of those sliders are going to be way high. Right. And that gives you the difference between a 200,000 word epic fantasy novel and an 80,000 word urban fantasy. <laughs> okay. If you dial those, if you, if you pull those dials back even more, 
you might find yourself in the range of a novella because novellas tend to have fewer plot beats and there really is almost no room for a, a subplot that's actually distinct from the main plot. Um, I found that any kind of sub-thread that I had in novellas, especially for the, the genre knots, really had to underscore and support the main plot of the kind of the A plot. Like anything that was that seemed like a B plot was really just another angle on the A plot. It was a sub-A plot. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, I maybe have two POV characters in the book instead of four or five, like in Shield and Crocus, where there's three main POVs and then there's a, a handful of others. Right. With genre knots in specific, the other kind of structural element that I have is thinking about episodes and television and how t in TV shows like Leverage or The Librarians um, or anything else that has a strong procedural premise, there's the threat of the week. And in genre knots, it is the kind of broken story in one of these genre worlds. And the heroes deploy, they have a story to investigate and to solve. And that gives me the scale of narrative. So with novellas, I think... You, you want to find a smaller scope and or scale in terms of how broad the story is or how far or deep it goes into there. And there's a big difference between like a 20,000 word novella and like a 40,000 word novella. Mm. If you look at the genre knots episodes versus something like Matt Wallace's Envy of Angels, his novella is a bit beefier. And, but then we can look at Nettie Okorafor's Binti, which is maybe 18,000 words. And there's there's as, almost as much difference within the novella form as there is between novellas and one of the others. That's fascinating because you mentioned the 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 range of of length of story going from twenty thousand to forty thousand, literally doubling your story scope. Yeah, uh, uh, still falls within that novella framework because. As you observed, I'm assuming it's because of the compression of time in, that you have to tell the story. Yeah, I think that's compression of time or compression of narrative. Mm. Um, I think that one of the coolest things about novellas for me is that there's no soggy middle. A lot of times when I'm writing a novel, I'll get 40 or 50, maybe 60,000 words in, and it's still a slog. Not that cool stuff isn't happening, but I'm just, I'm building blocks. I'm laying down foundation. You know, I'm, I'm building the road between the middle and the end. In a novella, beginning, middle, and end come really quickly on top of each other. And all of those shapes and infrastructure are still there. But because I'm a kind of fast draft first drafter, I can get to the end of a first draft of a novella go, okay, and now I can fix it <laughs> instead of a novel where it's like a novel really is a, a literary marathon. And how um, long is that, Michael, from, from putting pen to paper to writing the end for a novella for you? For me, it's usually 10 days or less wow. um, or 10 working days. Um, when I'm pretty active, I can get between 2,000 and 3,000 words in a day, usually in two kind of 30 to 60-minute sessions. Okay. Okay. And then I, other thing about novellas is because they're smaller, it's easier to hold the whole thing in my head right. and easier to outline and modify the outline on the fly. So I do definitely recommend novellas as maybe an intermediate structure for someone who has been cutting their teeth on short fiction and knows they want to build toward a longer form. Maybe plotting and executing a novella is a great middle step if you're not feeling quite ready to jump at novel. That's an excellent that's an excellent piece of advice because that that jump as we have found from short story to novel is 
holy crap, that's that's a yawning chasm uh, in in the gauge of storytelling. Uh, but yeah. you're right, a novella's a, a, a nice step up, more narrative than you have in a short story, uh, but not the full scope of you know big eighty thousand words. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think if you set it up right, you might be able to write a novella in a world where you know you want to do a longer story and then figure out where, okay, this is where my ending point for novella one is. What's the next novella-sized chunk of narrative? Mm. Write that novella and then do one more and suddenly you have a novel. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, you combine it all. Bam. You gotta, now, is that the way genre knots is going to roll out? Genre knots is much more like a season of television. Uh, very intentionally, where each episode is a contained narrative, but there is a season and a series arc where you can read Shootout Solution, put it down and be like, yep, that was a story. I had fun and I'm looking forward to the next one, but I don't need to have read the next one to have enjoyed the first one. Okay. Jazz, you had mentioned we were talking earlier uh, uh, an interest in that that parallel. What were you talking about with that? Well, you, you mentioned leverage, and then I, I noticed on your website that a lot of your writing has been influenced by various forms of television and like uh, the Dresden Files for your Geekomancy. Mm -hmm. How does that fit into how you're approaching this overall season? Like Dresden Files has the, the overarching multi-book plot that he's slowly mm -hmm. building up to. Buffy has the big bad of the season. Leverage has the big arc that they're uh, putting together each season. How are you getting that into genre knots? And uh, keeping it all separate with the with each novella's two and a half acts. So with with genre knots, when I structured it and when I was designing it, it came very specifically out of a marketing desire because the Tor.com novella imprint had been announced, and I knew that I wanted to play with novellas because I'd had so much fun with Attack the Geek, and I wanted to design a series that could really be almost publishing weatherproof where if I sold it to, if I sold it to tour.com and they took a couple, but then they didn't want to take any more, I could self publish them as novellas because novellas are doing fairly solidly in self publishing and that the structure would not be interrupted by the tides of publishing. Um, in terms of media influence, since I watched so much TV and I have a former life as a kind of academic media critic, um, I'm really fond of the procedural mode of narrative where there is a central story engine of a premise. Um, you know, in Leverage, it's the new person to help with the heist. In Buffy, it's the monster of the week. In the librarians, it's the case that's handed down to them. In a series with a procedural narrative engine, um, the characters are often reactive, and that gives you an initial set of plots to work with. And then the season and series arc represent the characters themselves being more proactive as they investigate mysteries that are kind of built into what's happening over the course of the season. That's and each interesting. Of, I, I, you, I, you just, a light bulb just went off, Michael. I didn't even realize that, but you're right. Wow. So yeah, because every episode of a show starts off with, uh oh, something bad has happened. We need to react, which, right. which is, you know, bad agency for a pro tag. But then, yeah, with the larger arcs, they're, they're actually hunting this bad guy who got away in episode one. That, Thank yeah. you. Please continue as, as I sit here and revel in that epiphany. That's awesome. Well, yeah, because if we look at television, like American television, because that's really what I can speak to, um, some of the most popular shows and the most popular genres are procedurals. They are cop shows, lawyer shows, and medical dramas. And almost all of those are procedural with a reactive professional team 
where a case comes to them, they deal with the case, and then they have their own personal stuff that goes along. And maybe they have their own agendas or their missions that are kind of multi-episode arc or season arc or you know ongoing. A lot of new procedural shows also have a meta plot um, where the individual episodes may or may not feed into kind of a season arc. And that usually derives from a main character's kind of personal agenda. I'm thinking of something like uh, white collar or maybe lie to me. Or, and then there's even arcs like that in stuff in classics like NCIS. Right. For genre knots, because it's a short season, uh, I had to make everything super efficient. <laughs> and uh, people who don't want to be entirely surprised by the season should probably close their ears for about 10 seconds Every individual plot in season one of Genre Knots builds the season and series arc. There's at least one solid beat in that meta plot. And you have that all mapped out? For season one, I do. And wow. I, I I broke out the ser- series all the way to the end of season five, because it's envisioned in five seasons, all la Babylon 5, the much shorter seasons, of course, where I know what the story, the kind of episode story of the very last novella in the series is supposed to be. Wow. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Mike Underwood after this brief promotional break. Ever notice that it gets dark just before it's time for bed? That's pretty convenient, isn't it? I can think of a dozen uses for Vegemite. Not a single one involves actual consumption. Hundreds, sometimes thousands, of random and quirky thoughts flip through our little brains every day. Thinking about founding the International Order of Dainty Silk Underwear Inspectors. Strictly for science, of course. Sometimes we allow those thoughts to surface long enough to be recognized as hidden gems. Don't look now, but I'm naked. Under my clothes. Scott E. Pond has been collecting his random thoughts and observations for the last six years. Mental Graffiti contains the best of the best, hand-selected for you for this volume. Whoever let loose ninja goats into my dream last night, screw you! You ruined a perfectly good top-secret mission I was on with Celine Dion. Mental Graffiti. Available on Amazon in both ebook and print on January 29th, 2016. Sometimes, you need to take a can of spray paint to your brain. Other times, your brain is the spray paint. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Michael R. Underwood. How do you tackle that mechanically since you're plotting each of these individual storylines kind of as you get to them each Mm -hmm. episode? So when I was designing the series, I knew that I, I I had a couple of ideas of individual episode plots like, hey, would it be cool if you had a Western where the heroic posse all gets killed? Like they're not the ones. And then the band, the bandits win. So that's a broken story. And then another one where you're about to have the kind of triumphant alliance of the planets and then the ambassador gets kidnapped. Um, you know, and I had these kind of questions that were episode plots. And then I had to figure out how they all connected because I was trying to build forward from the beginning and backward from the end. So my original notes before I pitched genre knots to Lee Harris at tour.com were episode by episode for season one, and then maybe five or six paragraphs for episode two, for season two, sorry, and then season three, season four, season five were less and less specific, but I gave the entire arc because I needed to get it out for myself <laughs> so I knew where everything fit. 
Now, a lot of that stuff in the middle is still pretty fuzzy, especially the individual episodes. But I know what my endpoint is. Well, and you've spoken at length about the the discovery, even within your outlines, within your structures, the discoveries that you make during your writing, mm-hmm. uh, invo- involving characters, involving the nature of the plots that you're that you're teasing and, and weaving together. So you basically allowed yourself that that grace to to discover and explore a little bit, but still nailed down your end point. Yeah, and I'm finding a lot of fun in leaving myself enough room and permission to go off course and to change and to reapproach things. And the novella structure has been really great for becoming a stronger editor of my own work mm. because I'm editing more frequently. I'm editing an individual thing and then another individual thing and so on, as opposed to the the nearly Herculean task of editing an entire novel. <laughs> well, yeah, if you can knock out a, a novella in 10 working days, you could be editing a novella once a month. And yep. that, that would make you an awesome editor. Michael, I got to ask you, I, the, the Geekomancy, Celebromancy, Hexomancy series uh, uh, were very strongly uh, tied to the, the tropes of the culture of fandom uh, uh, and of genre fiction. And with genre knots, you're also exploring and, and leveraging and sort of flipping a little bit the those same tropes, using them as mm-hmm. a, a stepping stone. And... There is such a fine line I have found because we talk about tropes and it's like they're tropes for a reason. They are useful, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a danger of, you know, pre, uh, what is it, telegraphing uh, uh, right. to the reader what's happening because you've used a trope that they recognize. I know how this ends, blah, blah, blah. How do you how do you walk that very fine line that you really do walk so very well uh, of, of utilizing those tropes, sending them up and, and setting them up as a story without flattening out and, and telegraphing your outcomes? Well, thank you for, for saying that I do it well, because it's, it's something I, I frequently struggle with because so much of my, my cultural inheritance as a storyteller is kind of that very specific pop culture orientation and the kind of PhD topic that I proposed when I was trying to get into grad schools was a ethnography of geeks and geek culture as it was popularizing. Cause this was, you know, 2007 through 2009. Cause I saw the tide coming in. It's the rise of the geek. <laughs> yeah. Um, age of the geek baby as Hardison says in leverage. <laughs> um, but in terms of making it work, and the differences between the series, um, I had a, a guest post that I did for um, XOXO After Dark where I compared genre knots and Geekomancy. The Geekomancy series for me is mostly about consumers and in being a fan of culture because it's characters and their relationship to existing properties and the way that they weave themselves into what is already there, but in a, in a, in a fashion that is really like fandom. Genre Knots is more about storytellers and why we tell stories and how, where the protagonists are weaving themselves not into fandoms, but to narratives themselves. And they are playing with narratives as authors and on that level, as opposed to as consumers or people who want to see themselves in a story. These are people who are working their way into into a story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that actually gives, frees you up as the storyteller to, to, introduce some very intriguing perspectives. I, I know your your academia uh, and scholasticism, Mike, runs deep uh, uh, in genre fiction and, and your observations of 
the structures and the history and the legacy thereof, uh, uh, that that just runs through your veins. So this gives you a chance to actually, you know, kind of step out from behind the curtain and at least have your characters point out some of the things maybe you've noticed about genre fiction uh, in your experience. Yeah, for sure. And with Geekomancy and the Rerez series to a certain extent and with genre knots more explicitly, um, what I've kind of been thinking of it as is so you have hard science fiction. So it's mostly, you know, physics, chemistry, so on and so forth, the hard sciences. And then you people sometimes talk about hard social science fiction as as being sort of a thing. And it's just it's about rigor, really, is what I think divides hard and soft um, within that, not instead of hard sciences versus soft sciences, because that dichotomy can go die in a fire. Um, <laughs> so what I'm trying to do with genre knots is effectively hard humanities science fiction. Wow. Holy crap, dude, that's breaking some barriers. <laughs> I think well, that's going to be think, the new subgenre. There you go. And other people have certainly been doing that um, because what it really is, is taking comparative literature, um, literary criticism, and r related genres explicitly in the humanities and using them as the generative um, tools and in investigative methods to create a set of speculation. Because I talk about this as science fiction. From a super academic standpoint, it may be more effectively defined as speculative fiction because there's kind of some hand-wavy science in there, but that's not really the important thing. The important thing is asking interesting cosmological questions of what if stories worked in a certain way where there was a interconnected set of dimensions or of related realities and story was the way that they related to one another. So what is super important is how we tell stories, why, and what their, what their impact is. Um, so that's really how I set up the stakes and the territory that I wanted to play with, with the series. Well, and you've certainly picked a, a, a fertile ground because as you observed and many others have observed, uh, storytelling is hardwired into the human's DNA. Uh, so if you're going to, if you're going to go meta and start exploring and riffing on something that everyone can resonate to, uh, pulling back the curtain on stories is, is perfect for, for that, for that message, that, that exploration. Now guys, we're out of time, but because there wasn't a long stalkerish intro, I'm going to pull an executive order and I'm going to, I'm going to give Giles one last question <laughs> uh, for Mike Underwood so we can we can fill our time and get even more goodness from him. Uh, Giles, do you got one more question for Mike? I do, actually. And you had said earlier that uh, writing genre knots the way you are was in a lot of ways a marketing decision. Um, mm -hmm. As a writer, I'm constantly told write for yourself, right? To be creative, don't write to the market. But you've clearly figured out a way to actually be creative while writing for a market that you know exists. And how do you blend those two and balance those creative interests with your knowledge of marketing, the, the knowledge that you obviously get through your uh, day job? Good question, dude. Yeah. So the, the way that I think about it, and it kind of frame it and it's a little bit disassociative but it's it's useful so go with me is <laughs> that when the imprint was announced i had a certain number of things going on and i wanted to get in on it because not only was it novellas but it was also very much it was very much mcmillan saying we are going to do basically a startup publisher within our overall umbrella and we're going to give them a lot of room to experiment and we're going to try new and different kinds of things and that was really exciting to me because you know I work in in publishing as a day job, 
And I'm very interested in seeing how the tides and the customs are going to be shifting. So I had a, a desire to work within that model. And I had some other things I was playing with, you know, the idea of novella series, working shorter, more frequent releases. So what I did is I took all of that from my marketing brain and I, I went to myself as a writer, almost like I was a producer going to a writer who's going to be maybe a showrunner, if we're going to use a TV metaphor, and saying, okay, bring me a episodic sci-fi series in novellas where I can do a couple with a publisher and then I can keep on doing them with the publisher where I can go indie. And I want you to give me something that feels a lot like the Rireas series because that's been my most successful work. And I think it's a good idea to go back to form because I did these other books, but they didn't seem to have seem to catch on as much. And I really like having a bunch of fun while I write and my readers having fun. So give me that thing. And then I, as a writer went, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then <laughs> I went forward and worked and I, I t kind of took the message and then made the work and did the brainstorming having already taken the input on marketing. And then as I came out with finished work, at least rough drafts, I came back and I like reviewed it and said, yes, this is doing the thing that I wanted it to do from a marketing standpoint. So I'm not making a like, ah, what BISAC code will this, will this story have <laughs> during the writing process? It was a before and an after, but during I was just writing. So when you say disassociative, you mean split personality. <laughs> you literally well, mean two different brains, two different aesthetics, both of yeah. which you embody uh, talking to one another. Yeah, like because it was here's one set of lenses on art and business as this hybrid thing that they are for me and making some notes and then switching to the other set of lenses and reacting as a pure creator. Beautiful, beautiful. Giles, does that, does that answer your question? Yes, and I'm going to have to listen to this a dozen times to make I sure I get all of the notes correctly. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, that... It, when when Michael says it, it makes perfect sense. I can totally see that. And as an actor, I I can totally take on a character role and do that. But uh, I I think that's a that's a unique perspective on things that would take you know Giles. I don't know if you have a theater background, but that that might take a little work on your part to cultivate those those two very different aesthetics. Well, I do have a little bit of business training, so I think I could kind go. of get my brain wrapped around it. There you go. Absolutely. That's awesome. Guys, okay, the, the, the clock has, like, drawn twin cult six-shooters uh, uh, while wearing a space helmet and <laughs> and uh, uh, jumping into a getaway car. I don't know what that means uh, other than clearly we, we've got a story that's gone horribly wrong. Call out the genre knots, but I also am fairly sure that means we are most definitely out of time. Michael, as always, a delight and a pleasure to have you here in the virtual studios. Thank you so much for, for sharing so generously and freely with your wisdom, sir. No, it's been a pleasure. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Giles, there was some gold there, man. There was there was some writerly goodness being strewn at our feet. Uh, what what are you taking away from that 20 minutes with uh, that you're going to like tuck in your writer's toolbox and uh, apply for future efforts? 
I don't think you have enough time left on this episode <laughs> to get a correct answer. So uh, <laughs> sum up. Just we'll be, be creative. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That is. And and Michael certainly embodies that vibe uh, without a doubt. For me, obviously, I had an epiphany. Uh, uh, the 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 structure of television in terms of the bereftment of agency on an episode-by-episode basis, but then the affirmment of that agency in the larger arc. Uh, and I'm just anal compulsive OCD enough about storytelling that that, that type of information uh, uh, really jazzes me because when the time comes to sit down and draft a story, that's one more... <sighs> One more framework, one more structure, one more arena shape that I can utilize in telling my stories. That was that was just fabulous. Awesome. And it shows that you can get inspiration and structure knowledge from pretty much anywhere you look. Yes, if you look for it. The, uh, the dogma of the roundtable. Absolutely right, sir. Well, friends... Here's how this is going to work now. That was fabulous. That was a great conversation. Uh, uh, There's more to come because in seven days, we're going to have Michael back in the comfy chair of the studio. We're going to have Giles in the slightly less but no less sumptuous comfy chair of the co-host. And we're going to add a guest writer who doesn't have nearly as comfy a chair as the rest of us. But we're going to add a guest writer to that mix who is going to pitch a story and we're going to brainstorm the heck out of that thing. It's, it's going to be as it always is magical. I can't explain it. I don't know how it works, but it always does. It's a mystery. So, but that's that's 7 days from now and I know that's a long time. Giles, help us out, man. What can our listeners do between now and 7 days from now to make the time just whiz by in a flurry of excitement and productivity? Get yourself a nice glass of Macallan 18-year and go write. Dude, accessorize your writing with some fine scotch. Look at you. Yes, write, by God, with Macallan scotch. That would make for some interesting stories. But get those stories out there. One of the best ways for the world to benefit from your vision is by getting your stories written and out there. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for, whether it's inspiration on frameworks of story during an interview or... Or, 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 you know, a, a lost present at the back of a Christmas tree. Uh, you look for that stuff. You look for it actively, aggressively, hungrily. And if you do, friends, I promise you will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. 
Thanks for listening.